Welcome to the Managing Violence Podcast, the internet's leading free resource on violence prevention, threat assessment, personal security, and self-protection, brought to you by R2S Violence Prevention. We are hashtag for the protectors. I'm your host, Joe Saunders. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My guest today on the Managing Violence podcast is Mr. Jason Brick. He is the host of The Safest Family on the Block, the YouTube show and uh, podcast, where he interviews people that specialize in family protection, home security, and a whole bunch of uh, miscellaneous topics. Uh, we have a great conversation today. We're talking about keeping families safe, staying connected with your kids. Uh, we're talking about being realistic about what your actual risks are when it comes to family safety. Some cool uh, hacks and tips, some travel safety stuff. There's a bunch of stuff going on that should help anybody who is responsible for maintaining the safety of your family or someone else's family. Uh, it should be a great episode. Before we dive into that, a quick reminder, I am just about heading over to the UK and Switzerland for my first ever international tour that will be taking place at the end of March and early April 2022. If you've been on the fence about booking tickets, now is the time, especially if you are coming to Birmingham. If you're coming to the Birmingham seminar that I'm doing with Tommy Joe Moore, uh, you have a couple of days left to take advantage of a free book and free t-shirt deal, uh, either one of my books and one of my shirts or one of Tommy's books and Tommy's t-shirts uh, if you book before the 28th of February, which I know is uh, very, very short notice probably today if you are listening to this when it comes out. But uh, there's an opportunity there for you to get some free swag as well as an amazing seminar experience. For all those dates and details, make sure you go to violencepod.com forward slash seminars and you'll get a full list. But for now, over to Jason Brick. I'm joined here on the Managing Violence podcast by Mr. Jason Brick. Jason, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, my pleasure. Now, uh, Jace, you, you and I have done a bit of a podcast swap uh, the, last, <laughs> the last little bit. Uh, I, you had me on your podcast, Safest Family on the Block. Here you are on the Managing Violence podcast as well. Good fun to do this. I've done it a couple of times now where we've uh, we've alternated podcasts. But uh, I fully expect there'll be quite a number of my listeners that are also listeners of yours. Uh, but uh, for those that, that don't know you or don't know much about you, can you give us a bit of a a walkthrough of uh, who is Jason Brick and what is the safest family on the block? Sure thing. Um, I'm Jason. I'm a father of uh, two and a half now. We've kind of had a, a nephew who's come in and claimed us as his own, as it were. Uh, but before that, I was a journalist. And before that, I was a martial artist. I've been training in martial arts in one kind of another since I was 11. And I'll go ahead and leave that to the imagination of folks, how many decades that is. And... With my training, when I adopted my oldest son, when he was seven, I found that even though at that point I I was 20 years in, I'd done a great deal of training in a number of arts, I'd had some professional security kinds of assignments, I found very, very little of what I learned up until that point helped me with protecting a small, helpless being next to me. And from there, I started really looking at what professionals would know how to protect somebody that's with me, started speaking with bodyguards, close protection specialists, speaking with police. I had a really interesting conversation with one of my black belts who was a, uh, he was a naval officer for a very long time. And he talked about how you could apply what he knew about uh, how you arrange a fleet to protect the largest, most important ships and how you could apply that to traveling with your kids. It was very interesting stuff. And this 
this curiosity built and built and built until I started my podcast coming on to two years ago where I bring on violence experts and safety experts from every possible, uh, what's the word there, every possible discipline. So one week I'll have a former CIA agent on there to talk about tradecraft as it relates to child safety. The next week I'll have a paramedic on to tell us the things that we can stop doing so he sees kids less often in his professional capacity. And then the next week I talk to a suicide counselor about uh, science and prevention. Mm. So I've learned a whole lot and I've had, I've been really humbled by the quality of the people who come on the show. I mean, I even got you for crying out loud. Yeah. I mean, uh, it must've been a, must've been a slow week, but uh, I, <laughs> I, I appreciate being considered. Uh, I'm, I'm really curious about that, um, that transition. Cause you said it was, it was having your, your older son come into your life that really, got you thinking about this. And, and I think uh, a lot of men, especially uh, will, will ha- relate to that. And I'm sure it might be the same for women. I can't speak to yeah, the female experience of motherhood, but, but certainly um, as a father, uh, things certainly changed for me in the way I approached violence and, uh, and self-defense when I became a dad as well, because, you know, like probably probably like you like i didn't really present myself as an easy target uh beforehand like i'm, I'm a big guy bald-headed tattoos uh you know, I, was, I was a bouncer uh up until quite close to when my first daughter was born um you know i, I had a pretty much a, a look and a, a situational awareness that probably made it very unlikely that i was going to be targeted for crime there's a lot of there's a lot of easier targets around um but I, I'll never forget the first time I took my newborn daughter in the public and, you know, you're getting her out of the car and you, you're like carrying this little bundle of like just goo and you're like, oh my God, I am incredibly vulnerable right now. Like if anyone wants to come and steal my wife's handbag while I'm carrying this baby, I can't chase them. <laughs> like, there's, there's nothing going on here that's gonna that that allows me to do anything other than just wrap myself around this child, and and keep it safe. Uh, and and that was a big wake up call, or, a, or almost like a bit of a slap in the face of vulnerability. Like you better you better get in the prevention and preemption uh, business because. Uh, the response capabilities with a with a newborn or with a, even just with a, a small child with you, completely different. And uh, yeah, I, I'm interested in that change in psyche. So, so what were some of the things that were going through your head when you're looking at your your martial arts background, and how do you apply this as a as a parent? So the the wake up call for me was, and again, my my guy, my oldest joined us at age seven, and it was kind of a sudden thing. He was up. He was a distant relative whose mom became medically incapable of caring for him. And so we figured out. So I went in over the space of about three weeks from uh, no kids to kid. And not just a kid, but a mobile Most of us kid. Get more, most of us get more perfect time than that. Exactly. And it just happened uh, one of the weekends just after he came in. I was attending the seminars at Kempo. Kempo is my home art, and they were doing the gun into Samson Kempo. And you can have different opinions about how effective they are and how effective they're not. But the thing I noticed was the overwhelming majority of them were, and even if you're not a Kempo guy, you know this style where you get off the line, you capture the arm, and the gun's at about hip level, and then you do something horrible to the person. Um, that also puts the barrel of the gun at exactly the height of a seven-year-old boy's head who is probably standing directly behind me. And I just did the math on that and realized, whoa, okay, (laughs) this is. And from there that 
spun into first looking to you know, the bodyguards I knew who had probably encountered a problem like this and what, what techniques did they have, what doctrine did they have surrounding protecting another person, which traditional martial arts training does very little on, if at all. And then from there, realizing that, yeah, you know, if I'm using a weapon disarm, if I'm using my skills, my techniques, what have you, on another person when I'm responsible for another small person, I've probably screwed up. And then looking further into that, you know, I, I like to say that the second you have a kid, you have to turn in your do stupid shit card. That license has been revoked. And so learning, and then I kind of bent my way, you know, bent my will towards learning the things that could prevent having to get that far, you know, doubling down on situational awareness, looking at how I walk and how my family walks in public so that we're less attractive targets and any skills I could. And then from there, it's snowballed out into, well, yeah, there's physical violence, but let's look at the realistic harms that come to children. And if I'm just training to prevent violence, I'm missing a lot of very important votes when it comes to keeping my kids safe. Yeah, that, that's a, that's an excellent point. And uh, that was kind of a rabbit hole. I went down a, a few years ago as well. Um, I, I was was get, spending a lot of time around uh, Dr. Gav Schneider talking about his principle of resilience. And, uh, and pre-resilience is basically risk intelligence and, and, and focusing on prevention. So understanding where you're vulnerable and, and make sure you prevent those things from happening or focusing your, atten- your, uh, your energies, I guess, on preventing those things. Um, and we, we talk about it mostly from a corporate risk management context, but you, you can apply it to personal risk management and to personal safety as well. And I remember distinctly, I've been, I've been uh, touring with Gav or doing something. Uh, I, was, I was out of state with him and uh, we'd be having these big conversations and presentations on resilience. And uh, I, I had a couple of hours to kill in the airport on the way home. And I thought, what does resilience look like from a self-protection point of view for me? Right. So I Googled like what, what's the leading cause of death for a man in his mid to late thirties. Okay. So the, the thing, the thing most likely to kill me at the moment is me, right? That's, that's pretty much it. Like suicide is number one, heart disease is number, uh, heart disease kicks in in the forties. But I mean, at the moment it's pretty much uh, uh, for, for males in their late thirties, it is suicide and road accidents. Like those are, those are things that are most likely to kill you. So those are your actual risks, not violent home invasions, not abductions, not terrorist attacks, but those. I thought, okay, well, the, the, the harder one for me to Google is what's most likely to kill my kids. Uh, leading cause of death for children under 10, drowning and followed by motor vehicle accidents. So I'm starting to see a trend here. So well, how much time am I spending being a better driver? Because uh, statistically, if anything's going to kill me and my family, it's more likely going to be inattention on the road as opposed to uh, you know, violence. So having that very risk-informed approach, and even though this is, this is clearly a managing violence podcast and not a uh, not a safe driving podcast, but um, it, it is important for us to, to keep that perspective and think about what actually matters to you. And are, are you training, are you studying and training to manage a risk? Or you're studying and training to live out a John Wick fantasy. And, and, and both those things are valid, by the way. You can train because you enjoy it and because you, you, you like the rush and because you like the social aspects and because you know, I'm not saying that stuff won't ever be valuable, but it's important that you have that, that risk-informed approach to why you're doing what you're doing and you can be honest with yourself about why you do what you do. Especially as a parent, because our responsibilities go beyond ourselves. Yeah. You know, and you train with those goals in mind. I One... 
one riff that some of my listeners will recognize is, you know, I, I've said for a very long time that my first self-defense teacher was my grade school track coach. Awesome. And, and now that I'm a middle-class, middle-aged guy, lives in the suburbs with a little bit too much around his middle, running is once again my most effective form of self-defense because it does limit that heart disease, diabetes, some cancer risks, the things that are going to kill me. Yeah. Way more than um, all the kicking and punching. And I love the kicking and punching. Don't get me wrong. But understanding what's, you know, what's most likely to extend my life, extend my quality of life and prevent me from having some kind of sudden death, at least my kids without a dad decades too soon. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. So let's, let's talk about your podcast for a little bit. Cause you've uh, like, like me, you've had the advantage of being able to sit under the learning tree from some incredible people. So what are some of the things that, um, were really kind of uh, whether turning points or epiphanies or just like aha moments for you from, from uh, those conversations. Like what are some of the big takeaways that you've had out of your podcast? Well, one of the big ones, and this isn't going to come as a surprise to you at all is how mellow and cool and giving really dangerous people are as a rule. Yeah. Like it's gotten, gotten to the point where if I'm thinking of interviewing somebody who's, you know, brands themselves as a, as an expert on violence, on self-defense, and they're not really chill, I start to wonder a little bit about their credentials because the legitimately dangerous people are the nicest people I meet. Mm-hmm. I, I think part of that too is like the, the, the motivation that it takes to become really dangerous or to really understand this. It's, it's not a topic that you get rich on. Right? It's, it's not a topic that you uh, you're like, oh, I'll, I'll just do this because it's got really good career opportunities. Uh, like if you if you get deep in the weeds on this stuff, it's probably because you've got a passion for it. And if you've got a passion for it, it's probably because you want to protect people. And if you want to protect people, then you probably want to share the information that you've learned. So, uh, I, yeah, I, I have had the exact same experience. The guests have been incredibly humble and forthcoming with with their time and with their expertise. Yeah, and kind and patient. I know that that's not the kind of epiphany you're asking for, but it's, it's I wanted to mention it because it's, it is true. Uh, the, there's some really great people operating in this sphere. Mm, I, and in a way, there's a, there's a lesson there too, because if you're listening to that going, I'm not kind and generous, well, maybe you should be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, in terms of, uh, you know, other things I've learned, there were, you know, the, those aha moments, those, hey, I did not know that mm. moments. And then also just a lot of really good hacks. Just you know, little little things you can do here and there that really help things out. You know, s- things as simple as making sure that you have fire ladders. And if you got a two floor house, <clears throat> um, Nick Hughes's point that um, when you get a hotel room, try to get something between the third and I think it's the fifth floor, mm-hmm. because below the third you're vulnerable to burglars. Above the fifth, um, most fire ladders can't get to you. Interesting. Little details like that. Um, and then some of the big epiphany or big, big pieces of news where I had to go, huh, I did not know that. I should have known that. Uh, suicide researchers now are looking at elementary school and there's either a significant rise in people dying by suicide in that age group or we're just now becoming aware of it. And these people were looking at accidental deaths and not looking closely enough, but apparently we often think tweens and teens for when we need to keep an eye out for that with our kids, but no, it needs to be much younger. Yeah. Yeah. 
So certainly that, that trend holds up that uh, we, we are seeing a, a really worrying number of, I mean, it's always worrying whenever a child you know, takes their own life, but uh, yeah, uh, like eight, nine, 10 year olds, um, which is, is heartbreaking to even think about what's going on in that kid's life. But um, yeah. And there's another piece there where that they're noticing that at that age group, you are physically capable of dying by suicide, mm. but your brain is not developed to the point where you understand permanence and mortality. So you have the ability to do it, but you have no understanding of what it really means. So there's a special danger if they, if somebody starts to fixate around those ideas at that age. Yeah. And I think the, the ability to foresee a future where things aren't the same way they are now, um, because you don't have a life experience to show you that life changes and moves on. Like everything feels so status quo all the time. Uh, when, when you're a kid, even when you're a teenager, I think there's, um, it, it's hard. Like wh- when you get to your thirties and forties, you can see different seasons in your life where things were hard and things were better. And sometimes that gives you a, an optimism that you can, you can push through whatever this is and things are going to look different in five years. But if you're 10 years old, like you haven't got a frame of reference for things ever being different as they are, as they are now. So, so therefore the permanent checkout might, might appear a little bit more attractive. Um, which is, which is yeah, certainly something as much as no one ever wants to listen to a podcast about, about uh, child suicide. If we're talking about our role as parents being protectors, you're going to be looking after your kids' mental health. You're going to be looking at, you're going to be maintaining those relationships and, uh, and being aware of what the risks are. Cause you don't want to be, you don't want to have the best home burglar defense system in the world and be completely absent in your kid's life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and on that topic, one of the things, this has changed my mind and my approach to the point that my oldest son's like, Jason, what the hell? <laughs> that I've become a bit of a hippie uh, about communicating with my kids, <clears throat> where I've talked to enough experts on child development, on communication with children, that I'm much more open about, you know, if a child's throwing a tantrum, a toddler's throwing a tantrum, that's almost never about the toddler being naughty. That's about the toddler being overwhelmed. If your kid comes home hot from something and they lash out at you, that's got nothing to do with you and their respect for you. That's got everything to do with what happened to them before they walked in the door or worse, what my previous behavior made them afraid would happen when they came in the door. And taking that, that kind of traditional parenting paradigm of, you know, it's my job to kind of beat the right behavior, not literally, but you know, with consequences into my kids to look to my own behavior and how am I making those hard days better instead of just setting up consequences for when they're already having a rough time? And I've come around to that in a big way. And it's, it has been a shift. And yeah, I'm, I'm becoming a bit of a hippie. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, um, it, it's, it's absolutely something that, that a lot of us uh, have to fight through. I guess uh, is that, that programming and that, um, I, Every, every stage of development that you go through as a parent, I mean, because as we, we talk about kids going through stages of development, well, guess what? You're along for the ride as well. So, I mean, you, like I, I'm pretty good now. I've got, I've, got, I've got four kids under the age of 10. I'm pretty good at that under 10 game. But it, like my, my oldest is, uh, you know, she's going on 10, but realistically she's going on 16. Uh, and like, like I'm, st- I'm starting to get the tween stuff going that I don't have any experience with. I don't have any, any runs on the board there. So uh, you, you go through that parenting development yourself, but I think there's there's a lot of um, what you just said there about not just trying to to enforce something because 
it's kind of human nature when you're not in control of something, you want to get back control of it. And when you're feeling like you don't know, you don't have a, a playbook for this particular phase, it's like, well, if I just do what's worked in the past, which is asserting my dominance and controlling something and putting it back in the box that I understand, uh, then uh, yeah, that's, that's not what kids always need. But, uh, at the at the risk of devolving into a parenting psychology conversation, <laughs> but, but there's so much there's so much to this that uh, you, know, you want to have the safest family on the block, coin a phrase. Uh, then you have got to be looking at this holistically. Uh, what are some of the what are some of the uh, the other things you you uh, were talking about in terms of hacks or uh, just general family safety strategies that that uh, were of interest? So a handful of the, the ones that really hit home for me for a number of reasons. Uh, so you know that trend, that awful trend that happens every summer where somebody leaves their baby in a car and it heats up and the child dies. It's terrible. And then there's that, that darkly humorous meme about experts say to put your briefcase, your cell phone in the back seat so you remember something important. Oh, like more important than your kid. And, you know, we all have a good laugh because shot of Freud is real. Um, but the truth of it is, that the overwhelming majority of those cases is not some drunk, stupid, irresponsible person. It's the parent who normally doesn't take the kid to daycare who's suddenly up for the result. And then they get on autopilot in the morning, which is something that happens to all of us. And then they just walk out of the car on autopilot. And hopefully most of the time they remember before something horrible happens. This isn't some irresponsible, drunken parent. This is a parent who made the wrong decisions or had the wrong things happen under circumstances that could happen to every single one of us. And so that idea of putting your briefcase or your phone in the backseat of the car is not that those are more important to you than your kid. It's that they're more automatic to you Mm -hmm. than your kid. So you drive to the office and you're like, reach to your your passenger seat and go, why the hell is my briefcase? Oh, right. Oh. Shit. And then you drive to the daycare. Um, but how much better is that annoyance than what could have happened if you hadn't done that? And just that kind of little reframing of that. Mm, mm. That, you know, we're all vulnerable to that. And that little simple hack that we all made fun of is exactly how to prevent it from ever happening. Mm. That's a, it's really interesting that you, um, you bring that up because uh, I was, I've been I've read a book, um, I think maybe a year ago or so. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a concept called habit stacking, right? So if you, if you want to build a new habit, then you attach it to something that you already do. Right? Uh, so uh, if you've already got something that's, a, that's an automatic cue for you, then you attach your new habit to that thing that you're automatically going to do and therefore you don't, you don't forget to do it. So um, for example, let's say that you want to um, uh, start flossing more, right? So now what you do is that you put your floss right next to your toothbrush, right? So whenever you would normally brush your teeth, the floss is right there. It's, it's an automatic cue. Those two things now go together. And then you build up the habit in its own, in its own right. Um, we can actually apply the same thing with, uh, with personal security and, and, and personal safety as well. Uh, I, uh, my, my parents, for, for a lot of years, we, we lived in areas where people didn't even lock their doors at night, right? It was, it was just completely safe rural area. So like... I almost had to learn home security for myself when I, when I moved out of home because I moved into an area where it wasn't quite that safe. I'm like, huh, I actually need to start doing things like locking doors and, and checking windows and 
you know, making sure all the cars are locked up before before you know, retiring for for the evening and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, you actually have to kind of build those those habits. And and it's not so much that I was stupid; it's just those weren't things that I'd had to really consider growing up. Right, and uh, and there are people that uh, when they move into new neighborhoods or they move into uh, new social environments where there there are going to be some some precautions they could take uh, that uh, maybe just stacking those things with existing behaviors might be might be a good way to remember them. But um, uh, so so that's, that's interesting, and I, and I think there's there's an element there of uh, what you said that they're not stupid people, right? They're not they're not drunk people. And uh, whenever the, the stories hit here, it's always oh, the mother left the car and the baby for three like, left the left the baby in the car rather. <laughs> For uh, for three hours while she went and played slot machines, you know, perky machines, uh, and and there's always that like oh what a terrible human being. Um, oh, where, where's the addiction at in her life that's led her to that that kind of mistake? Um, but then there are also the stories like you say about the yeah you know, the mum or the dad who wasn't normally on the drop off run who and the kid was was asleep in the car seat and they just didn't make a sound and now you've actually got the worst possible event in that person's entire life. And they're going to have to deal with that. And they're getting publicly scorned for it at the same time. So, um, I mean, if we think that that would never happen to us. I would be willing to bet that there is not a single listener to this show and myself, myself and you included who sometime in the last week got home from somewhere with no memory at all of the drive. Yep. <laughs> yep. And, you know, it, it, it happens, right? I mean, you think about how many, how many important things that you've like, you, you it's, I, I hate to draw a parallel between stuff and kids, but the number of times where I've been like sitting at my computer and it's three hours after I got out of the car, I'm like, where's my phone? Like, oh, I, I left it on the dash. Right? Or where's the ice cream? <laughs> yeah. We've all done that too. Priorities. Priorities. Um, Never forget the other. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's uh, that's that's important, right? It's um, it, I, I guess give yourself uh, I want to say give yourself a, a break because this is very important stuff to remember. <laughs> um, but stack the odds in your favor so you don't forget things like that uh, is is important. And I think for many of us, you know, the the you know martial artists, the kind of people who'd be watching a managing violence podcast, you know, we're sitting there, we read, you know, reading all the books, we're watching all the videos, we're training several hours a week. We sometimes approach some of these dangers with that ah, i'll be okay i'm a ninja you know we 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 answer that text on the phone when we're driving because hey i'm a really good driver which we all are and we're not wrong most of the time but still right we uh, maybe take chances in the neighborhoods we go to or the bars we have a drink in because we're ninjas and we can handle it and that goes to you know maybe we're not yeah you know, i'll never leave my kid in the back of the car because i'm a ninja i'll never et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so even maybe not even giving ourselves a break, but taking our, taking ourselves to task a little more about, you know, applying that precision and intelligence that we already apply to getting better at our training to the other areas in our life where we can stay safer. Mm. And, and it's like every layer of dumb decision you make degrades the training that you've already had, you've already put yourself through. Right. So it's like, well, no, I'm really good at this stuff. Yeah. But after three drinks, you're a lot less good than you were before. And, yeah. and after now, now you're alone or now you're it's late at night or now you're in a vulnerable situation or maybe now you're in a really you know, a shitty part of town that you probably shouldn't have been in. Like each, each layer of dumb decision makes you less effective than what you started off as. Uh, after six months of the kind of sleep deprivation that only having a newborn can provide. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, 
you know, it's uh, it reminds me of a jiu-jitsu quote. I think it might have been might have been uh, Henzo Gracie, uh, and and someone correct me if I'm wrong on the attribution, but uh, but from, from from memory, it's in, it was one of Henzo's quotes. He said, uh, "Take a black belt in jiu-jitsu, punch him in the face once, he becomes a brown belt. Punch him twice, he becomes a purple belt." And this uh, this idea that uh, you know each time you get chipped away at, you lose a little bit of skill. And and I think uh, I've applied that in a, in a lot of ways. It, it just sort of um, struck a chord with me when you're talking about the driving and the texting thing because yeah you can be a great driver it doesn't mean do you do you want to risk being a purple belt driver when it comes to that one moment where you might need to use those those driving skills you might have needed all your black belt skills in that in the next 30 seconds and you've taken yourself out of the game so uh yeah yeah interesting stuff uh i'm interested in your take uh, on what people get wrong when it comes to prioritizing their family safety, like what are some of the mistakes that you've either seen people make, you've heard your guests talk about, like what are, what are some of the, th- the cautionary tales, I guess, of when we try to do this well, but we sometimes screw it up. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to pimp safe esteem, which is an app that uh, I guess he hasn't come out yet, but he'll be, he's in this season. And this is an app where uh, international amount of mystery turned nerd has been just crunching the numbers. And this app will, on several different categories, violent crime, property crime, um, access to health, to health and safety, air quality, et cetera, et cetera, puts a numerical rating of the safety of various places around the world that you might want to visit. And the cool thing is, is it compares it to the same numbers for where you live. Uh, for example, he showed me that Sao Paulo and Mexico City are less dangerous for violent crime than New Orleans and St. Louis, for example. So if you're thinking about going to Bangkok and you with your family and you don't and you're not sure because you're a little afraid, it's you know it's a developing nation in a lot of ways and you're a little concerned about it, you can look at the numbers and find out if it's actually more dangerous than where you live right now. And uh, the flip side of that, if you're planning a vacation within the United States, uh, there are some places where you want to put on that security hat a little more aggressively than you would if you were going to Paris. Mm-hmm. So that, that kind of thing was one of the misconceptions that I had before going in about understanding really about the relative dangers of where you live versus where you might go, uh, both from town to town, country to country, and neighborhood to neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, another of the big ones, and this is my personal pet peeve, and... You're in Australia, so you don't have this big gun argument like we do in the United States. And I have my opinions about guns, and I've earned those. And other people have their opinions about guns, and they've earned theirs. I'm not here to, I'm not here to tell you what's what's what about that. What I will tell you is the next time some guy tells me that 300 bucks is too expensive to spend on a piece of a safety equipment for their home, but the next week they go spend 800 bucks on another gun, I have to I have to kind of look sideways at a. Uh, at how honest they are about their uh, motivations. Uh, the, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, and, and again, this is, this is, this is part of, I think what we, we, uh, we keep talking about in the show is just being honest with yourself about what, what are you spending on? What are you, what are you using your time on? Uh, and it's fine to say, well, I can prioritize $800 on a gun because it gives me a lot of enjoyment and I enjoy going to the range and, and it's that I'm actually buying an emotional feeling as opposed to, safety right it's not it's not just okay i'm not this that's 100 valid yeah as long as you're honest with yourself if you're saying i'm yes. purely for safety but you won't spend you know half as much on uh, you know, a better door frame 
then uh, perhaps you're uh, you're not being honest with yourself, or you're being ignorant to to your actual risks. Yeah, and so that that's another one, and, and that that prior, that weird prioritization comes again and again, and also from families, you know where they'll spend a lot of time and energy on making sure that the kid doesn't get poisoned candy, even though that never actually happens for strangers. Uh, but they'll send them out in an outfit that uh, has serious hypothermia risk. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not here to say, you know, shame on you for skimpy clothing, but if you live in Minneapolis and it's October 31st, uh, maybe encourage your kids to have a, you know, have a costume that's not going to give them frostbite. Yeah, yeah, valid. <laughs> uh, so I, I guess to to, uh, to encapsulate that, I mean, it's re- it's really about um, don't get so fixated on one risk that you're exposing them to a different risk, right? It's uh... exactly, and have a good understanding of what the real risks are. Mm. You know, one one interesting episode I think this was in season three of the show. I actually got an SVU captain to talk to me about child abduction. And not that SVU captain, she won't return my calls, but one working in uh, Ocean City, New Jersey. And I approached her saying, hey, would I'd like to talk about child lures. And she refused to talk about child lures because those don't happen often enough as compared to the conversation she wanted to have with me, was, which was about how to watch your kid and watch your coaches and watch your pra- pastors and watch your karate teachers and watch the neighbors and that, and you know, your your sister's new boyfriend. For that, people you know trying to harm your child, which is the overwhelmingly more common thing. Mm. Yeah, and a lot of this keeps coming back to risk intelligence, isn't it? So it's about being understand your risks, understand what's most likely to happen, and and with a limited budget and time that you have, make sure you're directing it at those things, uh, as opposed to the the fantasy situations that you know partly are motivated by ego and, and partly because they, you know, when you're really good at swinging a hammer, you'll start looking for problems that look like nails uh, and the ones that don't look like nails become a little bit too difficult. And also training's much more fun. It is much more fun to go, to go roll for an hour than to go through my house and check all of my uh, fire alarms and make sure the fire extinguishers are charged. <laughs> One of those is objectively more entertaining. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think for a lot of us, like, um, it's, it's the reference point for how likely something is to happen uh, because for, for most of us, and, I, and obviously this isn't everybody's life experience, but, uh, but for most of us, like we've never been in a building that's on fire. Right. So, and it's not something you think about on a regular basis. Uh, so therefore like that's not emotionally charged for you to think about fire safety. Um, whereas you've probably seen at least 30 depictions of graphic violence in your media diet, especially if you if your news feed looks anything like mine, because Facebook has realized what I do for a living and tends to show me a lot of stuff. Uh, but um, you, you've probably seen a lot of violence, like every single time you pick up your phone or every single time you turn on the TV. So therefore, your reference point for how likely violence is, your brain will over will, will overestimate that because it's seen it so frequently. Uh, I think it's a Steven Pinker quote uh, from uh, Better Angels of Our Nature, where he said that the human brain tends to overestimate uh, likely or probability based upon how easily it can recall something happening. Uh, and uh, but but yet we know that there are, you are much more likely to be in a car accident than you are to have a violent incident. Right? So 
yeah, so th- th- those kinds of things, it's, it's important that we, uh, we, we take that step back and be objective about yeah. what are the risk factors that I present, that my family presents in my environment right now. Um, I'm really fascinated by what you said about the, the travel risk side as well, like going to different, different cities and towns, because I think there's a, there's a, a natural human inclination to, to fear what is different. So when we go to a, a new country, for example, where everything sounds different, smells different, tastes different, uh, there's, there's a natural feeling of being unsafe because we don't know what the norms are. We, have, we haven't absorbed a baseline yet. Uh, but reality is that, that that city might well be much, much safer for you than where you normally live. No, absolutely. And, and of course you have to, one of the things that uh, Felipe, the guy who's, who runs this app pointed out that these are the raw numbers. They don't take into account those things. So you are a little less safe when you go to somewhere, you don't speak the language. You don't know the signs. You don't know which bars are safe. You don't know all those things. You are a little less safe because of all those things, but still it, even with that in mind, it might be still be safer than, you know, the, if you're living down in new Orleans or Miami, um, especially when you start factoring in the presence wraps and guns. Yeah. No, yeah. it's, uh, I, I really, I really enjoy talking about this stuff because it, it's not, it's not always the threat we think it's going to be. Right. And, and how many, how many times do you, you talk to martial artists and, or you talk, you talk to very capable, quote unquote, tough guys who found themselves in a situation like, I never saw that coming. Like I, I it, it just, I was completely unprepared for that. I was thinking it was going to be something else and now it turned into this. Um, actually, this is, this is a good segue, I think, to talk about your upcoming book, because uh, I know you've got a project which, uh, which I'm going to be contributing to, but it's, it's a really cool idea. And uh, rather than me give a summary, summary of it, I'd, I'd love to give you a chance to talk about this because I think it's a, it's going to be a fun, it's going to be a fun little book. So I'll, I'll throw it to you to introduce it. Outstanding. Now, before I do that, though, you reminded me of a, a drill that, as far as I know, is a Jason original that came out of the channel about fire safety. That I, I'd love everybody to steal it and use it. We've been doing it in my house for about seven years now, and the kids love it and I love it. So you have your fire extinguishers at your house, I hope. And if not, you know, you, you get the, the $20 Home Depot ones that last maybe a year or two instead of the $100 ones that somebody comes out to recharge. And then every year, um, we do it out here just before the 4th of July, because in America, that's where the big fire hazards are. You take the old ones out, you know, you get your new ones, you put them in place, you build a campfire in the backyard, and everybody in the house uses the old fire extinguisher to put out the campfire. Nice. You put the goggles on the seven-year-old, and they, you know, they do the pass, you know, pull, aim, squeeze, spread, and they, they talk you through it, they do it so that they're rated with the tool. And also, Everybody under fifteen freaking loves it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's actually that's actually really cool. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that. Uh, you, it's just on that, and again, uh, we'll, we'll sidetrack back to your book in a second. But, uh, yeah. but practicing that stuff is is so important. Involving your family, um, you something that that I do with with my family is if we had to get out of the house, what's everybody's job, right? There's I've got myself, I've got my wife, I've got four kids, uh, I've got. Um, nine-year-old uh, sorry nine-year-old eight-year-old six-year-old three-year-old right so so who, whose responsibility is it to go to the baby right the the older two older kids they're going to be responsible for themselves to some degree like they're going to get themselves up mobilized get going uh we're gonna we're gonna go get the two younger ones um obviously we're all gonna keep an eye on everybody but uh like that that's really what's your role and and where do you go to what's our way out does everyone know how to get to the secondary uh exit point uh, if the house was on fire and we have to go out windows, where are we going to meet? Where are we going to where 
monitoring? Like all these things that you would do in a workplace uh, from an emergency management point of view, why are you not doing it for your family? Yeah. Why aren't you training your kids to know what to do? Because at the end of the day, especially if you if you are outnumbered by your children, like like my wife and I are, like they're going to need to know their part because you're not going to be able to manage everybody. And uh, while, while it seems like such an unlikely thing to happen to you, um, we the, the story, you don't want to be the, the family in the tragedy where one child didn't make it out and everyone else has to deal with that for the rest of their lives, right? It's um, it's it's important to practice this stuff, and, and look, even even for me, like uh, uh, being being in security and protection, I was maybe four or five years, I guess, into into my career before the first time I uh, I went to a job interview for for a protection role. And they actually asked me to use a fire extinguisher on a on an electrical fire as part of my interview process, like to show that I knew how to use equipment. I was like, "Huh, I've never had to do this." <laughs> I was like, "Wow, I'm like 24 years old or something," and I'm like, "I've never had to use a fire extinguisher. That seems like a really big oversight. Like I've done a lot of PowerPoint presentations on fire safety, <laughs> and I've watched I've watched a lot of short videos on how to use a fire extinguisher, but I've never had to use one." Uh, There's nothing on and, you know, and a plan you don't practice isn't a plan. It's a dream. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, really, really great tip. You know, do as much practical stuff as you can with your family for sure. All right. Let's, uh, let's talk about okay. the book. All right. So the book is called there I was when nothing happened. And it's, it came from the, from the show where I had so many people on legitimate, you know, certified badasses TM who, you know, could win most altercations that they got into, but they were all talking about how much more important prevention was. And what this book is, is I got 40 different people, yourself included, uh, Nick Hughes is in, in there, Rory Miller's in there, Tony Blauer, a lot of, you know, legitimate, serious martial artists, violence professionals, police, bodyguards, bouncers, all, you know, the whole gamut. And each of them tells a story about a time that they avoided violence through skills like preparation, de-escalation, avoidance, awareness or you know avoiding injury through rapid flight and each one of those they tell the story and then we do a bit of a debrief in the book about well this is what got got applied in some cases they have shared their internal monologue about it and in other cases they've kept that kind of private and then we wrap that all up with some uh some exercises some considerations to turn it not just from a you know a collective memoir but into a legitimate textbook for avoiding violence that's uh, I love that approach because it's we, we get collections of war stories, right? Where, where where things weren't prevented because often those are the most traumatic stories, right? That's what people want to read. But I love the idea of a book about the times that nothing happened because I was able to prevent it uh, because I saw it early and that was it, right? And and it's it might seem like the stories are less dramatic, but there's there's certainly a lot more educational value to to preventing stuff from happening. You know, and some of them are pretty funny. <laughs> you know? <laughs> A lot of, lot of, you know, humor can, can fix, can fix it. Um, I was just finished recording. Uh, a lot of the people have me record their stories rather than send them to me um, on paper uh, with a fellow who is working as the bodyguard to a celebrity. He doesn't name. They're in a bar. And it's, it's a honky talk. And these three guys, kind of muscular guys are recognize the star and the bodyguards kind of off to one side, leaning against the wall, drinking a, drinking a non-alcoholic beer, like no duels or something. And he can see that these three are getting antsy and this star is, a, is an action star. And so they're, they're kind of egging each other up to maybe start something. And so what he does is he stumbles towards the bar in between them and bumps into one of them. 
oh man, I'm 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 sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, I've just had a couple too much to drink, you know, does that whole thing. Yep. Does it so what's up, man? What are you guys up to in that kind of friendly, drunk way? Just hey, do you know who that is behind you? Like, who? And names the other celebrity. No way. <laughs> nice. Completely derails them. Yep. Got got the whole situation resolved. The the guys never found out that he was that person's bodyguard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you got some really funny stories going on too, um, as well as useful stories. And I, I have two kind of goals for the book, and one of them is that you are a twenty-something martial artist who uh, worked in clubs because you know you're a martial artist and you get to work in a club, and there's this almost Yahoo sense of it for the first couple of months. I was that guy. There were a lot of that guy. There's also that guy who doesn't quite go that far, but you know, they, they don't shy away from violence and they have this idea of what a fighter is, what a martial artist is and how attracted you're supposed to be to fighting. And I think that if more, more serious martial artists of that age can read a book with the people they admire in the martial arts and in violence, talking about how important it was to them to avoid violence, and modeling that behavior. I think the martial arts industry, the self-protection industry and the world in general would be, would be a better place. hundred percent. And I think probably, probably just to, uh, to bring us to a close here and, uh, and uh, I know you're looking for, uh, for support and getting the, getting the book published. We'll better that in just a second. But when I remember when I did my first bodyguarding training, uh, the first bodyguarding course that I ever did, uh, one of the instructors said to me, if this job ever gets exciting, you fucked it up, right? And that, and there's there's a lot of truth to that because I mean, if you do your job well as a bodyguard, you should be planning stuff, you should be thinking about contingencies, you should be you should know your route and what you're gonna do so intimately that you have flagged every possible risk and you you are looking for those signs. You have good situational awareness. You know you know the signs of something going wrong. And you have exfiltrated about 14 minutes before the bad thing happened because you you saw it coming and it was already in your plan, right? So if the job gets exciting, either that means that you've had a lapse, uh, you've had a breach, or your client has done something that you completely that completely derailed your plans, which does happen, but oftentimes that's because your plans didn't accommodate your client's personality, right? So uh, I, there's a lot of those pieces there, but at the end of the day, it all comes back to you. It's, it's, it's owning the situation you're in. You'd never want that job to get exciting. It, uh, as bodyguards, a lot of us had martial arts skills. A lot of us had weapon skills. A lot of us had driving skills. You don't want to find yourself in a fist fight, a gunfight, or a car chase while you're trying to get someone to an autograph signing. So, yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's bodyguarding 101. Keep it boring, keep it predictable, and prevent the bad stuff from happening. Uh, and I think we can apply the same thing to parenting, to to being, being mums and dads, right? You don't you don't want to have an exciting day when it comes to your kids' safety, right? You have a boring, predictable, safe day, right? That's that's what you're after every single day. Um, as much as it's sometimes fun to go, I remember that time we spent the like the whole the whole night in the emergency department because Johnny fell down the stairs. Still would have been better for Johnny's brain function if he hadn't fallen down the stairs, right? So. Uh, it, it's it's important that we keep that that prevention focus going. So, if people are interested in the book, where do they uh, where do they go to support it or pick up a copy? So, we're funding it on Kickstarter, launching it there, and that runs from February twenty third through March seventeenth. And if you get in there early, uh, the first sixty copies that get sold, um, I'm going to give a free copy to a lo- to a local library of the backer's choice. Then we'll have some other charitable options after that as well. 
And so what, and that'll run again from the 23rd through the 17th. And just the way that the, the way the algorithms and the SEO works, the earlier people buy, the better it is for us. Uh, Kickstarter throws more and more of its own marketing mode behind it. So if that sounds interesting to you, please jump on and pick it up. And if you miss the boat, you listen to this a month later, uh, we'll be going up on Amazon just as soon as the book releases in earnest. Yeah. So it's 23rd of February to 17th of March, you said. I'll throw this out to you. Any of your listeners who bought, who get a copy, please mention that you heard about it from managing violence there and the, you'll get a backer survey. And I have a free gift, a 24 page uh, home safety and security workbook that I'll send to you just, just on account of because you're, your friends are Joe's. Uh, very, very, very generous of you there, Jace. All right. Uh, that, that brings us to a, a, the close of the regular interview. Uh, but if people want to learn more, where do they, where do they find the safest family on the block or get in touch with you? So you can go to YouTube, safest family on the block. Um, I've recently started taking the video things and making audio versions of the podcast. And so you can start finding that wherever the fine podcasts are found. You can track me down on Facebook. We do have a safest family on the block page, or you can look for Jason Brick. Um, there's a few Jason Bricks out there. I'm the only one who talks about martial arts and tabletop role-playing games all the time. <laughs> we didn't go down that path. Uh, maybe that's another podcast. Yes. <laughs> all right. Sounds great. Thanks very much for your time, Jason. I know you're going to stick around and do some bonus content for our Patreon contributors, but for those leaving us here, thanks very much for your time. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you once again to Mr. Jason Brick. And uh, if you're looking for how to contribute to the Kickstarter for And There I Was When Nothing Happened, fantastic idea for a book. And I'm absolutely thrilled to be contributing to that along with a number of former MVP guests. Uh, then the link to that is in the show notes below. Also a reminder that I am less than four weeks at time of recording from jumping on a plane and heading to the UK and Switzerland for the first time ever. So if you're interested in catching up with me, I'm going to be all over the UK, Cambridge, Oxford, London, Blackpool, uh, Birmingham. I'm also going to be in Zurich. Uh, have a look at the website, violencepod.com forward slash seminars, and you will find a complete listing of where to find me and where to book tickets. I would love to meet as many of you as possible. Even if it's not for a seminar, I'm more than happy to grab a pint and a meal and get to know some of my listeners who are in the UK or Switzerland or anywhere else where you can get to those locations. Until next time, we are hashtag for the protectors. Stay safe and stay dangerous. Talk to you next time.